Welcome to The Moon in Your Mind with your hosts, Chelsea Winter and Alyssa Ray. We are on a mission to build a community of empowered individuals to stay curious in their work, their relationships, and daily lives. By interviewing experts and uniting astrology and psychology, we will hold the space to connect you to new wisdom, unique stories, and insightful resources for you to cultivate your best human experience. Let's get curious. You guys, we are so excited to share with you our newest offering, the Cosmic Consulting Program. We are combining my wisdom of astrology and Alyssa's background in somatic psychology to support you in finding more authentic alignment and embodiment in your life. As your cosmic consultants, we will provide you with a juicy and actionable natal chart reading, a consultation session with both Alyssa and myself, as well as a nourishing somatic coaching session with Alyssa. And If you wanted to go even deeper, we are also offering two add-ons that you can choose from, a personalized journal or a personalized meditation crafted by Alyssa and myself based on your chart, consultation, and coaching session to continue diving deep into this work. Or you can just choose both. If you're ready to get started, shoot me an email at chelsea at themooninyourmind.com and we'll schedule a consult. We can't wait to support you on your journey. Hello, everyone. Today, we are honored to have two incredible individuals from the Prison Yoga Project joining us. So welcome, Nicole and Blair. Hello. Thank you for having us. Nicole holds a master's in public service, and she is also a certified yoga instructor and the assistant director of Prison Yoga Project. Blair is a shamanic practitioner, certified yoga teacher, as well as the communications manager for the Prison Yoga Project. Together, Nicole and Blair work to serve the mission of Prison Yoga Project, which seeks a cultural shift towards a healing-centered approach to addressing crime, addiction, and mental illness through yoga and embodied mindfulness. We are so grateful for you both being here, and we're so excited to dive in. So we always start every episode talking about your sun, moon, and rising. So before the episode, you guys sent in your sun, moon, rising. So I just want to like talk about it. We'll see what resonates, what doesn't resonate, and then we'll dive into kind of how it showed up in both of your lives growing up and how it shows up now. Does that sound good? Yeah. All right. Perfect. So we'll start with you, Nicole. So you are a Sagittarius sun, an Aquarius moon, and a Leo rising. And so with those three, I feel like the theme of your life is just like being a lover of life. And like no matter how messy, how crazy, how good, how bad, like you're just always loving life and like always looking to help others. And so... Sagittarius especially is like the student of the Zodiac, like always learning, always wanting to travel, whether that's physically or even just like through your mind, like reading or connecting with others, just always looking to really learn and really aimed at finding the purpose of life, you know, and like, why are we here? Answering some of life's biggest questions. Do you think like as far as Sagittarius, do you think so far feeling good. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Especially because I know we went on a, we did a service trip together in college and I'm just thinking about like that whole experience of my life of going places, of hosting groups where we're talking about like issues that are really important. And yeah, that, that makes sense even before I understood a little bit about astrology, which is still very little, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So everyone listening who doesn't know, Nicole and I went to college together (laughs) and we're very good friends. So yeah. And I feel like to the service trips, even the Aquarius side of it is like connecting people and being like humanitarian and being able to also see things through different perspectives. So even being able to see like, all right, this is what 
I don't know, is like currently being done to help people. How can I make it better? How can I like turn it on its head? Um, And I feel like those service trips, like just bringing everyone together and then teaching them and helping them is huge. There was this moment. Do you mind if I like, yeah, no, go for it. it, But it just, it reminds me because what you said, we were in New Orleans together. Um, We did like a Mm -hmm. trip in in New Orleans, one of our service trips. And I remember, what are they called? The ice creams, hurricanes or, Uh, yeah. Or what there's some hurricanes might be the drink. I think hurricanes (laughs) are the alcoholic beverage, but there's a, (laughs) there's a drink that's like a a slushy mixed with ice cream and we would have Uh, them. Is it a snowball? Snowball. Yes. And we would have them like every day after service. And I remember one day just like giggling, eating ice cream, like just being really goofy and then running in and doing our discussion group. And our friend, I think it was Mike, he was like, wow, you're like one second, just like goofy and all over the place. And then the next second, you just like turn it on and you're like a serious leader. And that feels like a balance between Sagittarius and Aquarius a little bit is dawning on mm-hmm. me now. So just thought I'd share that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, definitely. And then, and the Leo too. So you have a Leo rising, which I feel like Leos are just, and Blair, you have a Leo sun and Leo rising. So you'll probably feel this too, but like just so enthusiastic and just like happy and fun and lover of life and like figuring out how to align joy. And I feel like sometimes the Aquarius and Leo, they're opposite of each other on the Zodiac. So sometimes it can be a little bit uncomfortable of like Aquarius can be a little bit serious. And then the Leo is like fun, fun, fun. And so it's interesting to have the Leo and use that to kind of like bring to light the Aquarius and Sagittarius, like questions and answers that you have, and then be able to talk to people about it and project it. Yeah, that is. Yeah, I feel grateful, I think, for that balance. Yeah, definitely. And then Blair. So like I said, you have a Leo sun and a Leo rising and then a Virgo moon. So again, you know, there's a lot of that like happy, fun, enthusiastic, lover of life, maybe a little bit dramatic sometimes trying to figure out, you know, really what brings you joy and what brings others joy. And then when you bring in the Virgo, Virgo is just like service, 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 you know, how to help others, how to be a caregiver, how to be a servant to the world. And, you know, also like organization. Do you love checklists? I feel like that is such a Virgo thing. So like, just want to check things off. (laughs) So it's so funny. It's more that I need a checklist. It's yeah. it's actually <laughs> that there's like there's executive dis- dysfunction and like a little chaos. And so the checklist is is what keeps me grounded and it keeps me yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that you need it. Yeah. It's not that you like them. You need them. <laughs> um, and then also with the Virgos too, you know, and Leo, like just a really pure heart and just really loving other people and just always wanting to help others, like almost a compulsion. Mm. It's almost with Virgos, they say like you need to learn how to ask permission to help other people because sometimes you might just like jump in and then it's like, oh shit, like they actually didn't need help or want help. But that's like how much you care about other people. That's been a really big piece of my personal and spiritual work is asking how someone needs support or if they need support at all, because then it ends up being, then you end up coming in and you rescue people. And actually I I want to be empowering. I want people to feel empowered. I don't want people to feel like they need help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And that's such a Virgo journey, not Mm. to, you know, like 
because it is like you just want to help everybody and you are able to see too so many ways you're like I could help you in this way in this way in this way but yeah it's like how do you balance some people don't need help so yeah I love I love that you're already like aware of that in yourself sometimes that can take a very long time for people I think to realize and begin to work on that part of themselves and astrology is one of the things that I know the, the least about, but I think that it's really interesting to hear how your own evolution has changed from maybe like, I think that I, I did used to identify as dramatic and then you dive deeper into your own work and it shifts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And every sign there's, there's a high road and a low road. Mm. So I have found just doing readings and things like a lot of people, when you're a child, you go between the two. And Leo's, the dramatic side of it can definitely be a low road if you're using the drama just for like attention. But as we get older and if we start to work on ourselves and we go to therapy and we do yoga and whatever, all these different things, we start to spend more time on the high road than the low road. So yeah, it's great. I mean, and it's so fun like doing readings and doing things like this to hear people even realize that in themselves and what they used to identify with compared to now. Chelsea's so great. We love Chelsea. (laughs) Oh, guys are making awesome. me flash. <laughs> well, and I'm I'm curious too. I want to hear more. Chelsea might be going the same place, but about your guys' childhood and upbringing, and like more about how that showed up in your past, and kind of what brought you guys here. Yeah, Blair, do you? I I don't want to. No, Nicole, you go first. Before I even get into that, want to just identify Blair's discussion of wanting to empower people over, like just help them or make them feel like they need help is so in line with what we believe as an organization too. So I can't wait to get into that later. Just wanted to name that. But yeah, I feel really fortunate for the childhood that I had. I grew up in Connecticut around lots of family, all my grandparents, aunts and uncles, lots of cousins. I was a very like performer child. So I guess that is the the Leo little Sagittarius in me. I became probably like kind of, I was kind of shy in middle school. I think that was like the worst time in life. I've also like blocked out those, <laughs> those memories. And it was also when I was a really serious gymnast. And I think I now speaking from the perspective of like, ah, maybe that was like my Aquarius side really coming through. And that time in gymnastics really, really shaped my discipline and like my understanding of mind body connection, but it definitely wasn't like a healthy mind body connection. So kind of veered away from that in, in high school. And then in college, like, you know, sophomore year met my best friends and she was like, I'm going to study abroad in Cape town, South Africa. And I'm like, me too. Like I didn't ask my parents. I was like, I am going to South Africa. And so that was like the beginning of, okay, I'm going to go everywhere in the world and learn everything. And I know that's not like necessarily childhood, but now that I just turned 30, I'm very much seeing like the start of college as still <laughs> like, in, you know, teenage years. Yeah. I, I very much think I was a child. Yeah. So had moments of shyness, lots of outgoing personality, really beautiful family relationships. And I feel even more grateful and reflective now of that, given how much we study adverse childhood experiences and our understanding of trauma and just really understanding so many of the, the skills that I have come from the family that, that raised me in the really positive upbringing. But you're welcome to poke. Like I know <laughs> when most people are like, I didn't have any, like I'm, I'm sure there's stuff in there, but that's one part of my life I, I do feel really honored and grateful for. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And I, I echo you on feeling like college was still teenage years and you were still being raised in that environment differently. Yeah. 
For sure. That's awesome. Thank you. What about you, Blair? I was contemplating, I was like, how do I talk about my childhood in a concise way? I think that it was difficult. It was quite a difficult childhood for many reasons. Maybe the the overarching shadow diagnosed with uh, was then ADD or ADHD, started taking medications at six. Um, and that lasted till I was 21. And I think that I was never explained what neurodiversity was, or maybe it's positive attributes, or this is what makes you really creative, or this is what gives you this kind of power. It was really just looked at as a hindrance, like there was something wrong with me. And I think that that was a narrative that I, I held until I stood up to heal that narrative. And it really, all of the experiences of my childhood led me to say, how can I be the resource for parents and children that I did not have as a child? Mm -hmm. Like meditation. So when I found meditation, it drastically shifted my ability to focus more so than any medication ever did. And again, this is my personal experience. And so I think that if medication helped and supported you, then I, I think that that's the journey that that is right for you. But for me, I think that it did. I think that it did more harm. But also I grew up dancing. That was the thing that I did. And I ended up doing it competitively, like would train 25, 30 hours a week. So I found a lot of community and solace with my dance community but also a lot of negative self-image. You know, you're in front of a mirror again for those 25 to 30 hours. Uh, you're in leotards and you're in tights and you're, you're in comparison mode of like, why does my body look different from these other people? And also we would do, uh, we, we were trained in this really strict form of ballet called shaketi. And there would be tests and there would be levels and there would be this long sheet and you would actually get graded. And part of your passing level was your body shape. Wow. And your body size. Wow. And so I would go in knowing that I would automatically get scored less because of the way that my body was shaped. So all these kind of unspoken narratives that would happen within dance communities. Yeah. Blair, you saying that? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, and I was just going to say, so I think the thing, and I want to hear what you want to say on that too, Nicole, but I think what it led me to do was it, it led me to look at healing that was body-based. And so that was kind of where my healing journey went. It was like, how can, how can we use movement as healing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nicole. Just like you talking about growing up with ADHD I just remembered I grew up with massive anxiety. Like, I don't know why I think about my childhood. I like completely forgot that part. And like a touch of OCD that was not diagnosed until I was much older. But I, yeah. So thank you just for, you know, open vulnerability right away. It wasn't something I was trying to hide, but it was something that I like forgot about in my surface level explanation. And I think while some of it is just my brain, like it's genetics, it's my body. Some of it was gymnastics and some of it was Mm -hmm. being in a leotard, like in front of other people. And again, being judged, it wasn't as strict about like, I don't know that points were taken away because of my body shape, but points were taken away if your underwear showed like outside your leotard. Right. And so I think just growing up in such a critical environment was huge. And also why yoga was so attractive to me. 
Same. Yeah. And Alyssa and I were also both dancers. Mm-hmm. So we're, <laughs> yeah. So we all get it and all like went through the same thing. And even my dancing experience was not nearly as strict. I wasn't even really competitive dancing. Um, but I feel like even just when you put 10 middle school, high school girls in a room and you're, yeah, you're half naked, you're in leotards, like, of course you're going to start thinking about why are they better than me? Why did they get this role in the show and I didn't. Like there's just such, yeah, that competitive and comparative environment. Even maybe in my experience, I don't think they were trying to make it that way. Mm-hmm. My studio, it just was that way. Yeah. I have like so I feel like so much responsibility to name that my actual coaches were amazing. Like there's so much out there about gymnastics that was not true for me at all. Like I for I think part of the reasons I grew up to be a strong leader is my gymnastics coaches. Mm-hmm. And so I want to name that, but just society in, in general and yeah, being compared and feeling like there's only one way to look or be and that you have to feel shame. I feel like growing up, mm-hmm. shame is like a big word that I felt mm-hmm. as a kid and for things that like shamed for feeling anxiety, shamed for being really pale, shamed for having curly hair, like really anything that didn't fit the general mold. And we grew up in a tough time. Blair and I are similar in age. I know Chelsea, I think I'm like a year older than you. Yeah. We're all like I think you and Alyssa are probably the same yeah. age too. So we're like, 30 as well. Yeah. In the early <laughs> yeah. in the early 30s. And we grew up in like the early 2000s and that was a really hard time to grow up. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I definitely resonate with everything everyone is saying just about how through gymnastics, through dance, like we can have great mentors in those spaces and it's still a like communities that you use movement as a way to prove yourself, you use movement mm-hmm. as a way to achieve and succeed instead of, like you said, Blair, healing, right? And I know for me after college, there was just a lot in my family and my personal life. And I turned to yoga for that healing to like reconnect with that movement piece, but on my own terms and in a way that connected me back to myself because it was such like an external validation factor, you know, like whether you're competing or not, like it's this here, let me perform for you. And then you'll love me. Right. Like, why don't I perform for myself? Why don't I just dance and move and, and heal within my body? Because even as a talk therapist, I tell all my clients, talk therapy isn't going to do everything. Like you need to heal in your body too. And it's such a beautiful gift that we have. Thank you for sharing that with your clients as well. Because I think a lot of people, you know, maybe that have gone to talk therapy for 10 years and still feel like they're in the cycle. So redirecting people back to the body. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what we seek to do in, yeah. in our work too. Is <laughs> like, uh, yeah. And I, I not even intentionally so much of, I think why I feel so lucky to have the job that I do is everything that I believe is also what I believe for work. Like they're not separate. And a lot of folks, well, I, I wouldn't, I don't know a lot, but it's pretty standard in incarceration for folks to receive talk therapy or, or CBT. Like that is what's available. That's what's funded. And while it, it can be beneficial on its own without that body-based healing component, it can be really challenging as well. So that is what we seek to bring other folks as well is that opportunity to heal the body. Which is beautiful. Yeah. I want, I want to bring the anxiety piece of Nicole that you were speaking to as well. Also grew up with severe anxiety, but didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. I think it was 
I was in my 20s that I realized that I was like, oh, this is anxiety. And I think for a lot of people that we work with and communities that we work with as well, anxiety keeps you in your head. It keeps you away from having a felt sense of the body. Yes. Oh man. And that, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you just <laughs> open, <the laughs> open it up. <laughs> Let's go. And I think, yeah, absolutely. Like I, I, so I started anxiety medication post-college when I would like, my dad was dying of cancer. I was a teacher, like everything was shitty all at once. Not that teaching is shitty, but my situation was hard. And, um, for the first time when I started anxiety medicine, I felt like I could be present. Like, I don't think I ever practiced presence until I sort of had that opportunity to have medicine because I realized anytime I was in a room, I was always somewhere else. And I think that affects my memory too. Like, I think there are memories I don't have because I was so anxious all the time. And I, I share that now. And as well, I think about when you say like being in the body, I think part of it was like, I specifically remember being a gymnast in a leotard, not wanting to feel my legs touch because that meant they were like too big. And so there was the body image side of not wanting to be in the body. There was the brain distracted by anxiety. There was like all these forces working against presence. And even when I started yoga at first was like, I don't, I don't like this feeling. Right. And slowly that, that, that changed over time. But yeah, Blair, that just reminded me of, of so much. <laughs> so thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Alyssa and I have also talked at length about like our own anxieties. And I think same sort of theme, like not even knowing that what you were experiencing was anxiety, like as a child or in high school, I feel like I didn't really realize I was experiencing anxiety until probably college, maybe even a little bit after college. And I feel like part of it is that it's almost like a joke. Oh my, like people say like, oh my God, I'm anxious. Oh my God. Like there's a, me- there's memes about being anxious. Like I feel like, so when you see other people who are saying that they're anxious and they're really not, like it almost, it's clouding your judgment of like, well, what am I feeling then? Because I'm not experiencing that, but they're, I don't know. It's like, it gets twisted. I feel like there's not like enough education or people don't know how to talk about it, which then in turn affects people who are really experiencing anxiety, realizing that that's what they're experiencing. Especially if you grow up in a family that doesn't identify anxiety as an issue, <laughs> um, yeah. which was which was my case, even though it runs in some side of the family, it's like, oh, it's it's no big deal. So not feeling valid that s- there's something challenging you. And then I think if you add on, like, I'm a highly sensitive person, I learned <laughs> that's like a real thing and that I'm totally that. And then I'm like highly empathetic. So then when you're also taking on all of the energy and the experiences of other people in the room and you're talking to someone else who doesn't have those experiences and you're like, oh, you're not just like really sad that that thing happened or you're not like (laughs) shaking or can't focus, you know, it's, you don't realize that it's not a universal experience for everybody, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people do experience it. Mm-hmm. And I think too, you, you're just so used to your baseline, right? So if you grew up with anxiety, you don't know anything different. And I had a minor heart surgery a couple of years ago. And when I woke up after the surgery, I felt my chest for the first time, just like be calm. And like my heart didn't hurt anymore. And I told my doctor, I was like, I didn't know that this was what I was supposed to feel like. And recently I started taking a natural version of Xanax and talk to my therapist this morning. Like, I didn't know this is what I was supposed to feel like because I was so anxious for so long. So I think it's, you know, a lot of education needs to happen, obviously, but also just knowing like 
what what our baseline is and owning that and exploring what else is out there to help with that. And I, I'm, I'm sure you guys see that a lot with the people that you work with and the communities that you work with too, of just their life is their life and they don't know anything different. So how do we kind of support them in, in finding that different baseline and finding the different tools and resources that are out there to really increase their well-being and overall health? I think a really interesting piece as well is when you start to track in your family line where you pick these things up or just that we really, we have our parents' nervous system. Like our nervous system develops inside of our mother. So it's like the direct channel of what they have held. And I just remember, I remember sitting with my grandpa, my mom's dad, this is a, a little sad story. It was before he was passing. And I remember him sitting there with a scratch piece of paper, crunching numbers, basically just trying to make sure that his wife was going to have enough money to survive after he was gone. But all of a sudden, I just saw, I was like, oh, my grandpa is a really, really anxious person. And my grandma was a really anxious person. And so it's really interesting as an adult when you start to see your family members as other adults. Mm. It reminds me of that book, The Body Keeps the Score. And the other book, it didn't start with you. Like everything is passed mm. down through our DNA. And I think that education needs to be more widespread because I learned about it in grad school, right? Like not everyone's going to be going to grad school for a master's in marriage and family therapy, right? So, but this is knowledge and wisdom that we all need to recognize because too, I think as we're embedded in different systems. Like the community that I was raised in, it was very much this children should be seen, not heard. You don't question authority. You kind of just show up and succeed and accomplish and move on. And anxiety doesn't exist. You just have to suck it up and not feel your emotions. Right. And so living in that, that's just a narrative that is passed down generation after generation after generation. And then talk about the trauma of wars and genocides and poverty and, and all of that. And it, it, yeah, it's just very profound. There's this really beautiful book called Radical Dharma that was a big, a big one for me and talks a lot about this in a, in a much more poetic way than I'm about to. So I think it's, it's a highly, I would totally read it, but it talks about how both folks that were oppressed and oppressors have so much trauma stored in their body, right? Obviously, like there's so, as you said, genocide, slavery, that is obviously so traumatic and that is passed down through generations. And at the same time, it is painful to watch people physically suffer and to inflict pain on other people. Like we don't feel good when we do that. And so there's no one that has escaped this, this trauma. And that's not to say that my trauma as like a white, cis female is the same as somebody in a different body and a different identity, but just simply recognizing that our traumatic history as a country affects everybody is so critical. I think it helps you understand why we have like so many white men who are school shooters. It helps you, mm -hmm. you know, just there's certain things that aren't by accident. And I think if we start to look at trauma more closely or the way that um, Black women are have such a higher risk of maternal mortality and infant mortality than anybody else it, compared to like 
controlled for everything. Wealth, education, like it doesn't matter. There's still so much trauma. I know I have, I have a lot of family in healthcare and I get so frustrated. I like always cry at Christmas because I'm like trying to explain how much, and we have a good Christmas otherwise, but I try to explain <laughs> like how much racial bias and how much racism affects health. And they often are like, yeah, but yes. And, and I'm like, no, that's a fact, period. Boom. Yes, there's mm-hmm. other things, but that in itself like is a really big issue that we have to talk about. And that same system is what we see in incarceration as well, right? They're all connected, but it's folks that end up there out of a history of trauma, whether it's from generations or their own traumatic experiences um, growing up. Yeah. So I want to dive more into, you know, what Prison Yoga Project is on that note and kind of how do you, how did you bridge all this together? What do you guys do to support these communities? Tell us everything. <laughs> I feel like going into the history of it first might be Perfect. helpful. Blair, do you want me to take that on or? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Okay, cool. Um, I just don't want to stop Blair from sharing anything because as you can tell, she's amazing and I don't want to cut you off in any way, Blair. So Prison Yoga Project started in 2002 in San Quentin, which is a prison outside of San Francisco. And James Fox, our founder, had worked with another organization called Insight Prison Project. And he had noticed that there was a lot of really like good programs happening, but nothing was body-based. So he brought yoga in and very quickly it became really, really popular. And he is still going in weekly to this day, which is wow. just incredible. He's in his <laughs> mid-70s and is is rocking it. But by 2010, what he was doing was something other folks wanted to do as well. So he started traveling around the country and then around Europe to teach folks his method because it wasn't just what most people think of, of yoga. A lot of people, when you say yoga, you think of the poses and sometimes extreme poses. But what he was doing was teaching to folks that he recognized were experiencing trauma in a very traumatic environment. So you can't just like, teach a cool, calm, collected yoga class when you're in a prison environment. It's loud. It's There's just so many different factors. And so he knew that and he taught that. Then the body keeps the score came out. And I think it was 2014. And that gave so much evidence to what he kind of understood intuitively and shaped our methodology even further. And that's when we became a nonprofit that was fiscally sponsored by Give Back Yoga Foundation. And we kept growing and growing and building programming. And then in 2020, we became our own nonprofit. Our mission used to be, you know, we provide yoga, yada, yada, yada. We've upgraded it to include something that's more inclusive of all the type of programming we do because we recognize it's not just that we teach yoga, but we are seeking to change an entire institution that Mm -hmm. has been built on punishment, which does not work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It does not um, fix. So that's the overall big sort of story of Prison Yoga Project. And our team grew starting in 2018 when Bill became executive director. I joined. And then shortly after, Blair and Priscilla and Jen joined the team. And now we have a new person. So yeah, it's incredible. If if I can add, and maybe Nicole can talk about her point in this as well, is so I think also for the organization, there came a point where y'all realized that we actually need to offer more training and more opportunities for people to feel resourced before they go into the prison. Because especially now, since I have been going in, this work isn't for everyone and I don't think that just having a regular studio training sets you up to support people with a lot of trauma in incarcerated settings. I'll just be 
clear and honest about it. There's so much internal processing that's also happening. And so I think being a really resource person and having training supports you to facilitate inside. But that to say that Nicole and Bill created, and I think James as well, created our now standard foundational training, which is 40 hours. Nicole, will you talk more about the foundational training and its importance? Yeah, thank you. Because that that's yeah. a huge piece. We bring programming inside, but we're also a training organization. So we have many more people in our community than just folks that go inside the prisons and jails and, and teach yoga. And that's because lots of people are seeking a different way of doing things like judges, lawyers, psychologists. We're working on getting CEUs for some of those professions so that they can count that towards their continuing education. But yeah, so we used to have a 14-hour weekend training and we'd go around to different locations and we'd just kind of drop it, right? Like, this is trauma. This is how you teach inside. If you were in one of Bill's trainings, I went really heavily into social justice and racism, which all of those topics are super important. But if you're somebody who doesn't sit with those things, like I'll backtrack a little bit. I've talked about these things since I was 19 years old. And so to me, it's like, no big deal. Like, let's just like talk about all the the things. But for some people, it was really, really hard and they weren't able to absorb everything we were trying to teach in a weekend. And so we knew it needed to become a self-paced training. And then on top of that, it was when COVID happened. So we did not make it as a response to COVID, like, oh, we're just going to take what we're doing and do it online. We completely recreated it. And so it's, I, Blair said 40. It's technically 32, but it is 40 hours. Blair, like I agree with you. It's a much longer, it, cause it can be, it's a deep dive. So you can go as far into it as you, as you want. But it talks a lot about in general, what is the system of incarceration? What's the difference between a jail and a prison? It invites you to research what are these facilities like near you? And then we go a lot into the history of incarceration, how incarceration was tied to slavery and then post slavery and the way that we have incarcerated different groups of people more than others specifically black and brown people. And so we really, really deep dive into that because a lot of the people that come in to teach are often white. And so there's this intention that we set not to bring in these systems of power that we've all grown up in, like, right, to recognize when you're a yoga teacher, people often look at you as like, you know, a lot, like you're this like, cool hippie philosopher that can just like tell you both how to live life and how to heal your body. And that's just like not true. We're all learning always. Thanks, Sagittarius. Right. So it's just sort of like we had to help people really understand their identities from an embodied perspective. So like when I say the word white, when I say the word wealthy, when I say the word woman, what does that do to you? And how is that going to show up in your body when you're seeking to facilitate a, a space of safety for other people. So we barely even get into how to teach a class. We get into like, what is your personal experience? Because mm-hmm. we know so much about how the nervous system works is this not just self-regulation, but co-regulation. And if we're coming in there, like these all-knowing experts, we're still operating under an unequal power dynamic. So that is like, I feel like the heart of what we're trying to do with that training. And then we do get into, okay, this is the difference between what a trauma-informed yoga practice looks like versus what a typical yoga practice looks like. And it's all about choice and agency. So like, you know, I don't know if you've ever been, if you go to a yoga class and a teacher is like 
telling you to do something, is putting their hands on you, is in any way making you feel uncomfortable in your body, that is not trauma-informed. And it just wouldn't work in prisons and jails. One, because you can't you can't touch people. That's just not allowed. But two, even if you did, there's no sort of choice and agency in that. And so we dive deeply into that. And then finally, yoga as service, which is what Blair talked to so much in the beginning of like, I want to empower people. I don't want people to feel like I need to fix them. And that's a huge part of this too, because the people we work with are incredible. Like these are folks that have been through so much and they do so much self-work when they're inside that they need to know it's them that's doing this cool work. We're just an excuse like to practice yoga together. So that's a summary of our, (laughs) of our foundational training. And actually it's through that training Blair came on the team. Um, Yeah. I mean, I really, the training is incredible. I remember sitting on the couch. I was like shaking. I had this email written to Bill because I did the training with Bill and I just really, really loved it. And I was like, I've, I've wanted to work in prisons for over a decade. And Prison Yoga Project was this thing that was always in the back of my mind. And finally, when I had the spaciousness during the lockdown to reach out, I was like, okay, like this is what I want to do. And I, and I reached out to you guys about the training. So basically after the training, I just, you know, wrote an email and I was like, this is my resume. I don't know if you guys need volunteers or if you need help. Um, and then, so we had a couple of meetings and I came on at maybe 10 hours a week and then now full time. Yeah. 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 What you're not including was we were like very blown away by your presence in workshops <laughs> and what you had to say about the work that we do. So I just wanted to add that in there, but it's often people's first step in getting involved in prison yoga project is doing that training, whether they then go on to facilitate with us or whether they go on to incorporate it into whatever they're doing. We have folks, we have someone she's, we're counting her program because it's super tied to the mission, but somebody who is a lawyer, who's going to be working with other lawyers that are um, defense attorneys and providing mindfulness and also an understanding of how to work with folks that are incarcerated. So it's, It's a big umbrella, a big, I don't know the right word. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's incredible. You guys are doing amazing work and and should be really proud of yourselves and proud of the mission. And, you know, it just seems like it was really kismet for both of you to join the team and be, be a part of this incredible community. And I'm wondering too, if we can break down a little bit of what, what does it look like for the trained professionals to go into the jails and prisons and and provide this type of care and support. I'm going to lead on Nicole for that as well, because (laughs) until Amy joined, she's transitioning. Amy's our new program director. And so this was also a big piece of Nicole's job was program director. So maybe you can lead the audience in, in the journey. Yeah. So it, one thing to know about the work we do is it varies by county, by region, like not all correctional facilities are the same. And so there are some correctional facilities that are all about rehabilitative programming and like, yes, please, let's do yoga. And there are others that are like, yeah, sure, like come on in <laughs> and a little less supportive. And so it, every environment is is very, very different. So it could look different if you're in California versus Arkansas. I will say, I think a lot of people assume that I wouldn't get a lot of support at the jail I serve at just because of where I am, but it's one of the most progressive jails that we 
have in the country. So shout out Little mm-hmm. Rock and our sheriff's department. <laughs> but you typically would, I'm just going to like walk you through, like, as you said, like what a professional would go through. So they've done our foundational training. They've done an application with us. We have ongoing resources for them, but we're, we don't give someone like a, this is a sequence that you have to teach. We give folks guidelines around creating, creating an experience or facilitating an experience. And just want to caveat that with like, you can't create somebody else's like emotions or experiences for them. Like I can say all I want that a place is safe, but it doesn't mean that it, that it is. And so just doing our best to give people lots of choice and agency is, is what we seek to do. And there's typically a pretty long like clearance process that you have to go to less so a jail, more so a prison. Once you're inside, Class could be anywhere. So some classes are outside. My classes happen in the barracks where all of the folks sleep, eat, go to the restroom. And so that's, I think, a little less common. It can be in small spaces with metal tables that you can't move. And so you do chair yoga. It could be in a gym where more things are happening around you. As our program is longer, as it maintains its professionalism, as we build more relationships, we tend to get more and more support from facilities. So we start to see the sounds go away, correctional officers who are really supportive, don't jangle their keys, all that kind of stuff. And we go in for about an hour. We always start with some sort of discharge because we recognize that the environment that folks are in is is chaotic often. And then we do our asana practice tied with breath and the psychoeducational content. So we're talking throughout class and we often want folks to talk back to us. So I don't know if you've ever been to a studio and it's like kind of stuffy. No one really like says hi to anybody. Not true. Like I, like we guide into chair pose and folks are like, ow, like they, they say it out loud. They like really own their experience. And we intentionally invite opportunities to do challenging poses like a chair pose, like a plank pose. Cause what it does is invite some nervous system resilience and it invites some reassociation with the body because so many of the folks that we serve are disassociated due to traumatic experiences. But I'm not just doing that. I'm telling them that I'm doing that and why I'm doing that. And so we're all sort of encouraged to like find our window of tolerance and press against it and build. In my specific case, most of the folks that I'm serving are in substance use recovery. And so a lot of them are pushing through that like uncomfortable itch to use or the feeling of like not knowing what their sentence is going to be because they're in jail. And so we talk about those experiences and how yoga can help those experiences. That's my population. Other populations, like we've served in administrative segregation before where folks are still in their jail cells or their cells because they have to be. We now have a new program in a few prisons in California, specifically for the LGBTQ population. We have youth programs. So as I said, it really differs depending on where we are, but what does not change is yoga with choice and agency and a facilitator that is here to co-regulate alongside folks. Blair, am I missing anything major about that experience? (laughs) No, you're awesome. Yeah. I think just tying in the piece that makes the yoga that we offer different. And of course, you know, maybe looking at the, the origins of yoga, you know, maybe the original origins of yoga were trauma-informed, right? Like, so like to say that yoga and trauma-informed are different historically might not be accurate, but from the Western yoga that we know that we specifically offer trauma-informed because it's that autonomy piece is really understanding that 
most of the time they don't have choice and agency for their life when people are incarcerated. And so to carve out a time and a space that allows people to have choice and not be told what to do with their body is really important. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Blair, because we did not create or invent what we are doing. And I feel like that's really important, especially this idea of restorative justice. That was a practice of Native American tribes that so much of what we do is just learning from what other cultures have done and adapting it for this particular time in the world with this particular environment. Blair has inspired the use of the term post-lineage. Blair, can you talk a little bit more about what post-lineage is? I understand, but you're better at explaining (laughs) Yeah. And I hope that I get her name right. I think this comes from the work of Theodora Wildcroft, but I learned it from my teacher, Dr. Christine Selda, who did her PhD on this work as well. So the idea of post-lineage yoga is that it's basically taking the guru off the pedestal. So we know that there has been a lot of abuse, emotional, physical, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, really, in yoga communities, um, often perpetuated by men that have been put up into a pedestal position. So I think one of the roots of post-lineage yoga and especially um, post-Me Too movement, again, is empowerment. And so, you know, through a Tibetan Buddhist lineage that I study, it's often seen um although you have maybe like a root teacher, the view is that you hold them as a spiritual friend because the important thing is that you see that everyone is still human. And so I think sometimes when we put someone up on a pedestal, we think of them as a God. And so it is easier for them to fall from grace because we've put them up here. And so we have these high aspirations that we want to be just like our teacher. And then when our teacher does something human, it's devastating to us. But what if we actually just looked at our teachers as they were human, right? Okay, like the Buddha. The amazing thing about the Buddha is that he was human and he attained enlightenment or, you know, his goal was to end suffering for himself and all beings, right? And what I think is so beautiful is that is this human aspect. So that's a little bit of a tangent, but post-lineage yoga is not putting all of the emphasis on the root guru. It's like, can you hold the teachings without holding the teacher higher? Yeah. And it, and it does, that is something that we actively have to work against because it's really easy to come in and sort of be put on that pedestal. Folks often are so incredibly grateful that we are there and we, we need to sort of not let that take over or be a thing. And one of the other core components I think that I haven't mentioned yet is authenticity and relationship because whether or not the yoga is happening, if, if we're not real, first of all, like folks that are incarcerated can like smell bullshit. They, they have like high, like their detectors because of trauma, right? Your detector for a safe person is often very, very good. And so if we come in and try to be anything else than we are, it's not going to work. And then on top of that, if we come in like we're experts, we kind of already talked about this, we want to debunk that for, for power structure. But the ability to form a relationship, like a human-to-human relationship with another person is so critical in rebuilding trust in oneself, in compassion, in empathy. And so at the end of the day, it doesn't even really matter what type of yoga we're, we're doing as long as we're creating that relationship with folks as well. And then this goes back to how we started this podcast of like, well, what was your childhood like? And who are you as a person? Because you bring all of that to the program. And so I, 
often why I started with why I had like a really positive childhood is I know that that's the reason I'm here. Like I I know it was because of those strong relationships and like positive upbringing and not having a lot of trauma. And that's not to say I think someone with trauma can't be in the exact same shoes. I think people that have experienced lots of trauma are the most resilient people in the world. It's just really important to know who we are and where we come from to be able to really see somebody else on the human (laughs) human level. And so that is really important too. And I will say the woman that I serve on Wednesdays love talking about astrology. (laughs) They like, no matter what, almost every incarcerated person that I've come in contact with, teenager, adult, they know their, their sun sign. They want to talk about it. They want to know what it means. (laughs) We have a lot of fire signs and it's often (laughs) like our icebreaker because people get so, so excited about it that they, they want to know. So it, it there is the humanness to everything we do and not just the like yoga. You guys should bring Chelsea in. Yeah, they <laughs> would, they would love them. it. They would just think it's the cool. I think I you messaged me, Chelsea. I like posted on Instagram any recommendations for folks interested in astrology because they wanted to read it and I can bring books in to donate. And mm-hmm. I, I donated one of the books Chelsea recommended. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I love, I mean, just in general, like I'm so excited about other people getting excited about astrology and actually wanting to learn astrology. So I like really nerd out on it. Like people who, like people on social media who are into astrology and it's like, oh, I'm a Capricorn. So I just suck. And I will like always suck. I'm like, no, like we need to teach people. You can't just like hide behind astrology. So when people are excited to actually learn, I am just so, I feel like I sent you a list of like five books. I read I those like, <laughs> too. I read it too. And I think something that's exciting about astrology is it's a window into talking about ourselves and the things we've experienced from a little bit zoomed out view. So you don't have to right away be like, well, my childhood sucked. But if you're coming from like an astrological standpoint, if you're looking at it through that lens, I think it makes it a little easier to be reflective on your mm-hmm. life and and what got you there and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it just gives people a language mm. to talk about things that maybe they never have before, um, which I have found to be just very exciting. Bill, our executive director, knows all of our signs. Would you say <laughs> he is like an amateur astrologist? He knows a lot about astrology, um, and he is aware that we're a team of fire signs. Our founder, James, this feels really important to share on this podcast, is a triple Aries. Wow! Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I think we have one. Like one of our teammates is a Taurus, and everybody else is like fire, fire, fire with a and, and a lot of air. And so when we're thinking about adding to the team, we're like, yeah, we really need some earth. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say, and like the fire and air, I mean, it's so go, 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 go. But you definitely need someone, yeah, with some earth or water to help bring you back down and like take a step back. And like Alyssa and I, we say this all the time. I'm fire and air. Alyssa is almost all of her church is earth. And we really balance each other because where I'm like, go, 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 Alyssa will be like, no, like, let's actually take a step back and, like, really look at what we're doing and let's be more intentional. And so it definitely helps, like, balance a team to have all the elements. Yeah. And I want to, for a quick second, to kind of go back to both of what we're talking about with astrology and a lot of what you guys were saying earlier about the programming and everything. But it just sounds like 
with astrology, you kind of can take the ego out of it, right? So you're not just thinking from this like certain perspective, but you're thinking like that zoomed out, right? And it sounds like that's what you guys are really foundationally doing too, is like taking the ego out of like, I'm not your guru just because I'm coming to share this practice with you and guide you guys through this. Like, this is your journey. Like, let's find autonomy and empowerment in that. And I think especially for individuals incarcerated, that's so important to build that trust with them and build that foundation of like, you can heal yourself and like, you can have this journey for yourself and and move through this. And I also loved the fact that you guys don't just make it like a studio yoga class. And it's just like, everyone needs to be silent and just do what I say. And like, maybe I'll say hi to you at the end of the class, right? Like telling them why you're guiding them into the challenging poses, informing them with the psychoeducation piece. Like that is so crucial and awesome. And I love it. Thank you. I'll add a piece on that as well. So I go into RJ Donovan, which is a prison down at the border of Mexico and California. And so it's a men's prison and we go specifically on to something called Echo Yard, which is a very progressive yard that specifically is working towards more restorative justice. There's more programming. It's more rehabilitative. And you can tell I haven't been on other yards yet, but they did like a mural project during the pandemic. So now the yard completely outside is full of murals like they drew the ocean. They painted the ocean. And then like there's a a place where you walk up and get your medication and they made it like a little beach hut. They drew a beach hut around it. And so it's a different feeling, I'm guessing, than other yards and other prisons. But I remember being in class the first time and really seeing, feeling, and understanding that I am coming into their home. I mean, these men might have been at this prison for 20 or 30 years. Maybe they got moved around, but maybe they have been here specifically for 20 or 30 years. And so, again, removing the ego. And the most important thing is just us being there together in relationship. Even having silence, intentional silence together, I think is really important. But yeah, just really this understanding that we are coming in potentially into people's homes. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a toilet flushing often when we are in Shavasana at the end of class. And I joke with them that we're just going to associate the toilet with peace because we're like all feeling peace in the toilet. Right. And so, yeah, it it is their home and you want to honor their home and not make them feel bad that like a toilet is flushing or that something Mm -hmm. is happening. And they, they treat what we do together as such a sacred space. They they truly do. Often the mats are like already set up before I get there. I don't know if they can do that at RJD where you are, Blair, but they're like leaders. They get those mats out and they get going. Every single time I am given a mat and a block, like someone once the, it's a cabinet that's locked every time. So one of the participants will always come and give me a block. Someone always comes over and cleans my mat after like Mm -hmm. the way that I watch them be in service to each other and how also how immediately welcomed that I felt. Um, One of the participants came up to me, shook my hand and was like, Hey, we set up in a circle, choose a spot. It's yours. Like, you know, they're showing me the ropes and just so welcoming and really any opportunity to like nurture and care for each other is what I continually see in class. Yeah. And we have, I mean, we are now, we have, over a hundred programs globally. It's, it's rapidly expanding as COVID becomes less and less of an obstacle. I say over a hundred because it fluctuates because of COVID, but very, very 
ever is there an incident where one of our folks feels unsafe. Like when we go into that space, I feel like if something ever, if someone ever tried to harm me, they would protect me. Like they will not allow for anything to happen. And I just feel like it's important to say that because I still have family and friends who are like, oh, be careful, be careful. I'm like one, while I'm in the jail three hours a week, <laughs> like that's like a mm-hmm. small portion of what I do. But also like, I don't feel unsafe. If anything, I actually feel much safer because I'm in a community of folks who really care about like goodness and growth. And then when I'm out in the city, like I'm more scared because I'm like a woman in America, you know? <laughs> and so yeah. it's, I don't know. It's just, there's an inherent fear of being in like a loud, like metallic crowded space, not saying that it's like walking into a spa, but when it comes to the relational aspect, like it's there and it feels like so good and secure to be with them. And they, I think more people need to know that some of the, our programs are kids. Up until recently, I served kids that are ages like 10 to 17. And so when I hear people say things about incarcerated folks, it's just like, you're, sometimes you're talking about a child that's like literally in jail because their parents aren't taking care of them, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, I just want people to know how human the folks are that we mm-hmm. get. Like, it's an honor to work with mm-hmm. them every week. Like, it's, it's an honor to do what I do. Mm-hmm. No, and thank you for sharing that because I think it is so important, like the humanness of it, right? And like, and not seeing them, it, you know, if somebody is listening and is interested in doing this work, but might be a little bit nervous or scared, like realizing like you are just working with other humans and, you know, just because of where they are doesn't mean that you will be put in harm or that you think of them as a certain way. Like, you know, they're just humans who are also working on themselves and also, you know, going to these yoga classes. And I assume, well, maybe I shouldn't assume, but like they're choosing to be there, right? Like I assume it's not something like you're forced to do or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say like 99% of them, there are some cases where, which I think this is actually a good thing. Like in like youth court, judges are moving towards assigning yoga as one of the things they can do as their Mm -hmm. sentence. But even within that, all they have to do is be there. Like we would, we're like, you know, this is your choice. If you're choosing to sit here, that is a okay. So yeah, they're, they're very much choosing to be there and places like Donovan, they have like a hundred person wait list. It's pretty popular. Um, and so it's often the case that maybe when we start, people are a little unsure and then very quickly folks are like, Oh yeah, this is something that I want to be a part of. And we're just working so hard to expand our team because we're like just scratching the surface on how many people are interested in doing this work. It's like, and, and being served by yoga and bringing yoga. It's just something that could very easily explode given the right amount of staff. <laughs> they need to give you guys a documentary. <laughs> I feel like we've been on a few. Have we been? Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. I am also a documentary filmmaker. And so it has been on my mind. I think, okay, so I'll tell you. So the pieces that I've been trying to bring forward, this is the struggle that I've been having recently, that I think that there are some people who need to be temporarily separated from community because they have caused great harm. A lot of people that we work with at Donovan have murdered people. And we also have an incarceration system that over-incarcerates and harms people that don't deserve to be in there, right? So we have many different populations of people that are incarcerated. But we need a new system. We have a broken system, completely broken, 
that is not rehabilitative. We have a punitive justice system. So we separate people that have harmed others. They have been harmed themselves. They continue to harm. They don't receive resources. And then maybe after 30 years, they're released. And that is a broken system. But what I hear from the stories of a lot of people that are incarcerated and have caused great harm to other people is because they lacked a sense of belonging in childhood. And so what happens when people feel cut off from family and society and culture? And I think that's some of the root that we're looking at. And so that's what I'm trying to dive in further of what does belonging feel like? What does belonging look like? You know, and we've cut ourselves off from the land. We've cut ourselves off from earth. So as a collective society, how can we belong to each other? How can we re-belong to this planet? How can we re-establish these ways of being together? Mm-hmm. Talk about attachment wounds, right? Like that's it, like attachment to source, attachment to like family, attachment to ourselves. And I'm sure you guys see a lot of that in the work that you're doing and the individuals that you work with. Yes. So I could listen to you guys talk all day. I really could. This is amazing. <laughs> but if you had to share, you know, why are you both so passionate about this? I mean, I know you touched on it, but in in like one sentence, like what would you say is the reason that you are so passionate about this work and that you continue to do the work for Prison Yoga Project? I, I kind of have a go-to of one that is just simply like trauma can be healed. And and that's why I do it. Like having a dad who died pretty young of cancer, there's just like certain things in this life. Thank you. Um, that just, that take you out, right? Like there, there's nothing we could have done differently. And that is so not the case when it comes to trauma. Like it is absolutely something that can be healed. The body can be healed. And I just think we're sitting on this beautiful potential with yoga and mindfulness to heal communities. And so I want to get it out there as fast as we can to those who deserve it and need it most. And I see that as those who are incarcerated. So yeah, it's just this like felt urgency to make everyone aware of this practice and feel like it belongs to them. And it's not this thing that like rich, thin white ladies do. It's something that everybody can do. And I say that jokingly, but sadly, that is the like perception often among a lot of folks. And so, yeah, it's just like this, this is one of the problems in our society that we can address and be fixed. And we can address cancer and things like that too. I'm not saying we can't, but this one is like easy, affordable, fun, beautiful. Like there's no reason why it shouldn't be everywhere. I think the reason why I show up for this work over and over again is because I believe that our nature is good. I believe that our essence is good. And I think that bad things happen to people. But again, over and over, it's the story that I hold. You know, we have a lot of stories oftentimes informed by religion or beliefs, and they're also often controlled by power or narrative. And so, you know, sometimes there's narratives that you're born bad and you need you need to be saved or you need to be healed. And so I really hold the value that our inherent nature is good. And so that makes me show up over and over again. I think it helps to have 
a really wonderful team. Like someone pointed out recently, like we enjoy hanging out with each other in staff meetings. <laughs> and it's so true. Like I think outside of the work we do in prisons and jails, we want to also create community and create a like a job that you're not like tired from at the end of the day or one that doesn't drain you. So I think there is a huge aspect that it would feel like almost irresponsible to point out that like my team cares about me and my well-being and I could not do this type of work if they didn't like mm-hmm. it because it is really easy to get burned out. I did Teach for America for three years and I was like done like it, like and I loved it. It wasn't that I didn't love it. It was just that I was pouring so much out and not getting so much back. And I just think like James and Bill from the beginning have just been so intentional about like caring about us and making sure we practice what we preach to other people. Mm. And so like, I actually think that's, it's less like magical. Like what we do is magical and I love that, but also I couldn't keep doing it if I didn't love the people that I worked with every day and genuinely who value me as a human and not just somebody Mm. that produces, produces, produces. (laughs) So I love that. It's incredible. I'll build off that too quickly, Nicole, that I have never felt more seen in my wholeness than working with Prison Yoga Project. I always feel like I had to put on a mask and be someone different. And now I can show up as like my mystical, neurodivergent, talkative self. And it is <laughs> encouraged and welcomed and loved. Yeah. And really like the, working with Prison Yoga Project is an opportunity that I have prayed for for years is that the work that I do is mutually beneficial. It supports my life. It supports other people's livelihood and it feels good. Mm. That's, that's, that's all I've ever wanted. And so I feel so grateful to work for Prison Yoga Project. Incredible. You guys are amazing. I'm so happy for both of you. I'm so happy for the communities that you serve, your staff. It's yeah, it's, I could cry. It's hard. Yeah. It's amazing. Thank you. Well, my dream is one day our foundational training will be like a social justice training that everybody seeks out, whether or not they dream of doing yoga or whatever it is. Cause I think we've just really have a way of capturing the way the world is and the way we want it to be and how to get there as a community. And so we really invite everybody, everybody in. Yeah. I love it. Love it. I love it. So if someone wanted to get involved with Prison Yoga Project, you know, how would you, so I think you mentioned like everybody takes that, the foundational course and then, and then what from there, like if somebody wanted to even just like donate, I assume Mm -hmm. that's an option. If they want to teach in a prison, like, you know, what are all the different ways someone could get involved? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So there are so many ways to get involved with Prison Yoga Project. One is that we are continually offering opportunities to engage as a community, to learn and be together. So we have webinars that we turn into a podcast. We have those at least twice a month. We also have additional educational opportunities to come and be together. So that's one way to join the community. We have our foundational training, which again, we highly recommend, which involves four digital virtual workshops. So you get to meet other people that are in the training. You get to meet our executive staff at Prison Yoga Project. You can fill out a facilitator form, which Nicole will probably talk to you more about, which basically starts potentially the onboarding process of becoming a facilitator. We also give you the resources and the support to start your own program. And so maybe from there, Nicole can talk more about other ways that you can get involved with Prison Yoga Project. 
Definitely. And just to piggyback off the training real quick, we really um, are intentional about accessibility. And so we have so much scholarship opportunity. So if somebody was really interested in getting involved, but they couldn't afford the cost of training, we have a scholarship application. We have payment plans. We don't want that to be a barrier for anybody. And that's really true of our yoga teacher training, which we also have. So if you want to become a yoga teacher, but you're like, I don't want to teach in a studio, our yoga teacher training is a healing-centered training. So you would learn how to work with folks that are in prisons and jails, but also recovery centers, recovering from eating disorders, unhoused folks, really any any population that is deserving of yoga. And so we have that. And then, yeah, you, folks would apply through an application. They'd interview with me or our new program director, Amy. And if they live in an area where we already have a program, we would link them up with that program. If not, we have a training, which I'm currently revising and updating this week, (laughs) um, that it's free for all of our facilitators and it encourages them to do like the outreach and establish a program. Um, we look for folks that don't just want to facilitate yoga, but are really like leaders in their community because there's still so many places that don't have yoga programs. And since we're, we're a remote organization, we all live everywhere. We also really want to empower folks to, understand their community and figure out what would be best in their community. So we are like the, we give out lots of love, lots of resources, lots of support. And then we want to encourage folks to build. So yeah, you can be involved like at the very minimum, come to our webinars, like, and you're already a part of our webinar slash podcast, and you're already a part of the community. And then you can always donate. That definitely helps. <laughs> We're trying to like rapidly grow our budget so that we can hire more staff because the more staff we have, the more programs we can reach. Like, Last year, I alone was like overseeing over 120 programs while also doing data collection, while also doing grant writing. So with a new grant that we won, we were able to hire a new person, but we're always, you know, in need of that as well. And so, yeah, which is the hard part. It's not fun talking or asking for money. That's not my favorite part (laughs) of it, but it actually is really cool to see all the people out there that do want to invest and build. And there, there is a really great community of people that believe in it. So yeah. Amazing. We'll link everything below too. So people have access to all that fun stuff, but we always end every podcast with asking about curiosity because as you guys know, curiosity keeps us human and it keeps us growing and learning, um, gets the ego out of the way too. But how do you guys stay curious in your lives and your work? And what are you guys currently curious about? I think animals and nature keeps me curious. Mm. I was talking about octopus this weekend i don't know the the plural form of octopus octopi something else we'll maybe. <laughs> but like the theory is that each arm on an octopus has its own brain and then their head is the central brain so they actually have nine brains oh my gosh. so each leg is an ind- almost like an independent being wow. and they have three hearts I think that's amazing. Like, oh my gosh, looking at look at a being that has three hearts, right? They are uh, they're telekinetic, so they speak to each other through like the way that they change the color in their body. And I don't remember the philosopher that had said this, but I was listening to a lecture one time that basically octopus they squirt out ink so that they can have a private thought. Wow. For that's, everyone who's listening, all of our jaws just like dropped. <laughs> that's a theory. That's a theory. So wow. they can they can have their uh, a private thought. Yeah. So again, nature keeps keeps it. It keeps me curious. Yeah, I love that. 
I've been, I'm just a reader. And so sometimes I don't even know what I'm going to be curious about. And then a book will, will spark my curiosity. I just got it. I just finished this book about cults and it was really, really fascinating. And my curiosity was, was really in language and how we talk and the way language can like be coercive, can be invitational. And it really related to the work that we do. So honestly, just, I stay curious through books, but I've also been really curious about food lately. Like I love cooking. And so, um, I've been approaching that with a lot of curiosity and just new recipes. And in general, like I'm curious about myself. Like, I think that's what yoga teaches you is like, Oh, I'm kind of like down today. Why is that? Or, or I, I think this is going to happen or maybe that. So just kind of being curious about my day as opposed to being like so regimented has been really helpful. And I, I think curiosity is honestly like a word for 2023. I haven't really set much intention because I'm not good at sticking to things when they're rigid, <laughs> but just that's also probably a Sagittarius earlier. <laughs> but yeah, just like being curious about everything is a really exciting way to live. And I think keeps you in the present moment. Amazing. Thank you. You're welcome. I love that question. You do too. <laughs> so for everyone listening, where can they find you guys? What's the website? Any social media? Fortunately, our, well, a prison yoga or, yeah, so for, yeah, or uh, okay. kind of everything. Cool, yeah, cool. you guys, um, prison yoga, all of it. <laughs> we have like the domain prison yoga. So if you were to forget everything and just search us on Google, you'd be able to find everything really easily. But we're prison yoga project on Facebook, Instagram, uh, prisonyoga.org for our website, my personal like social media and stuff. I, I'm not great on because social media exhausts me, <laughs> but Blair does like a really amazing job with our Instagram blog, just so much. So again, if you just search prison yoga, I feel like all of it would come up. Would you say so Blair, especially prison yoga project podcast on Spotify? Yeah. 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 We've got a podcast now. So again, just those webinars where we're replicating the audio and turning it into a podcast, just giving more people an opportunity to engage with our work. But yeah, I would say Prison Yoga Project podcast is an opportunity to connect with us. Our Instagram, we're always talking about our programming and really, again, just reinforcing this trauma-informed modality that we offer. Yeah. And I'd say uh, one day you can find me on LinkedIn, but I'm not proud of my profile right now. <laughs> we're trying as a team to be more on LinkedIn. Blair, you're on LinkedIn too, right? To connect. I'm, a, I'm a, you know, probably like a measly 40 connections or something, just a little <laughs> sweet little loner in the LinkedIn world. I love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm on there. Yeah, we're there. We're growing. We're growing. We're need, We're realizing the need to do that. But I love it. So everyone go follow them on LinkedIn first and foremost, and then you can go on everything else. <laughs> Give them some more followers. Yeah. I love it. That's awesome. This has been really such an honor and a pleasure. And again, I can't thank you both enough in, in your company for everything you guys are doing for these communities. It's so empowering and so important. So thank you for sharing all your wisdom with us today. Thank you for seeing us and having us on. Yeah. And for just this opportunity to talk more about what we do and this extra time I got to spend with Blair today. <laughs> I'm happy about that too. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Thank Nicole. You. Yeah. This conversation was such a good one. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. You can find us over on TikTok and Instagram at the moon in your mind. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of this growing community.
We love you. 